0: supposed to wake up. Is, where, where the Republican Party right now is not led
1: by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be called the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live!
2: Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show.
0: Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B.
3: Welcome to our first podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show for the New Year 2010. Listeners do continue to support our program, and I'm very grateful to Christopher Welch of Binghamton, New York, and Mark Lewis of Mill Valley, California. If you'd like to help, go to my website at peterbcollins.com. And here on the first working day of the New Year, it's January 4th as I speak to you. There are two important stories that broke while we were into the uh, the doldrums and uh, boozing of the holidays here in the United States. Maybe there were some bowl games involved in your life, too. But some critical events occurred, and I wanted to get to the expertise of two of my favorite sources regarding our intelligence community, and in particular, the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. And I just learned that this is the first time these two distinguished gentlemen have appeared together on a radio broadcast, and uh, I'm delighted to have them both. More than 50 years of experience at the CIA. Melvin A. Goodman uh, is the author, most recently, of Failure of Intelligence, The Decline and Fall of the CIA. Mel, welcome back to our program.
0: Thank you. You have two reliable sources for the price of water.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and Ray McGovern also served at the agency. I know he was the guy who gave the daily brief to President Reagan back in the 80s. And uh, these two gentlemen have impressed me as uh, great resources over the last few years during the trying times of the Bush administration and what have turned out to be even more trying times under the Obama administration. And I want to get their take First, on the events in Afghanistan that occurred after Christmas, Uh, we now know that it was seven American intelligence uh, uh, officials or or operatives who were killed at Forward Operating Base Chapman, which is near coast in the eastern portion of Afghanistan. The eighth person who died originally was identified as an American. and We now know he was a Jordanian intelligence officer named Sharif Ali bin Zaid. And we'll come back to him and the Jordanian connection. But first up, Mel Goodman, is this, uh, as it's been portrayed in the American media, a freestanding attack? Or is this a concerted effort to combat the use of unmanned Predator drones and other aerial assault vehicles, uh, in Pakistan, because we're getting uh, competing claims of uh, responsibility for this suicide bombing that was very effective. Uh, and the so-called Pakistani Taliban uh, has now surfaced as uh, potentially the sponsor of this event.
0: I think it's quite likely that, that the Pakistan Taliban uh, were the sponsors. Uh, I think this informant was a double agent. Either recruited him or was in the process of recruiting him, to put on um, their roles uh, as an agent. But it was too late; he'd already been doubled. And I think the uh, suicide bombing was an act of retaliation for the various activities of the drone uh, in North and South Waziristan, which is sort of the home base for both the Pakistan Taliban and the Afghan.
3: McGovern, your comment?
2: that these uh, people gave their lives to protect our freedom well you know, you know it's hard really hard to say that yeah because people you know don't want to uh, countenance the notion of uh, of uh, having died in vain or sending people to die in vain but you know let's be honest that's what we have here my heart goes out to particularly the base chief with those three small children mm-hmm. um, but lesson should be don't do those kinds of things. It's a feckless exercise to begin with. Even the politicians know that. Listen to Dave Obie, the head of appropriations. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says this is a, a fool's errand to send 30,000 more people there and stay in Afghanistan. And then the next breath he says, "But if we're going to do it, we have to pay for it. You know, we want to pay for it. So you know, if we can get the money together." We'll pay for this fool's errand.
3: So we'll we'll have a fool's errand fund drive, some fool's errand bonds, a fool's errand tax. Is is that what we should call it?
2: Well, we'll probably call it something else when we try to raise the supplemental funds. But isn't, you know, the, the disconnect there is just so glaring. And, uh, you know, the, the pity is that uh, these three children will grow up without a mother, and that doesn't even count. The Afghans, uh, the Afghan boys who are handcuffed and shot by... By our own by our own troops uh, within the same week. so it's you know, it really is infuriating how this thing will be played in the mainstream press and how those who t- talk to uh, former CIA officials other than Mel and me <laughs> will play it as you know we've got to get back
3: at them. well, and and Mel, what Ray is alluding to is correct, but uh, this uh, a series of uh, vengeful attacks and the blowback, uh, that, that is inevitably produced, uh, you, you can take it back at least to the 1980s. And so we seem to be oblivious to the perceptions of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan, to the perceptions of the not-so-secret war in Pakistan, and to the very clear perception that we seem to believe that everything we do is right, righteous, and justifiable.
0: Well, to me, it goes back to the Israeli playbook that uh, if the only tool you have in your toolbox is a hammer, every problem is going to look like a nail. Uh, and people wonder why there's such animosity in Gaza and the West Bank toward the Israelis, uh, and forgetting that the Israeli uh, really crimes against the Palestinians started after the 48 War and continued during the 56 War, uh, and have continued apace throughout the 70s and 80s, going into Lebanon in 1982. And President Ronald Reagan then made the terrible decision to pull the Israeli coals out of the fire by sending Marines. And 200 Marines were killed in 1983. Reagan, at least, had enough good sense to pull those Marines right out of there. He covered his tracks by invading Granada, of all places, 48 hours uh, later. But at least he got the troops out of Lebanon. Now, Obama took 90 days uh, to make a decision based on uh, the options that Stanley McChrystal uh, sent forward to the White House. And Obama, after 90 days of what was supposed to be rigorous thinking, I don't think a lot of rigorous thinking went on, no national intelligence estimate was done, uh, contrarian opinions were not called in, he relied greatly on the military.
3: And a withdrawal was off the table from October, if not earlier.
0: It was taken off the table uh, immediately. And you always have choices in this situation. This is not, as Obama termed it, a war of necessity. We haven't had a war of necessity in this country since World War II, as far as I'm concerned. I agreed with the decision to go into Korea, but even that was a war of choice. If you look at the choices we've made since Korea, we've made some pretty bad choices when you look at Vietnam and Iraq and now uh, Afghanistan. So we're creating, as Ray said, uh, greater roles for the Taliban, both Pakistan and Afghan Taliban, and of course greater uh, enlistees uh, for al-Qaeda. And then you add to that the intelligence blunder that took place on Christmas Day, which to me was uh, a replication of what happened on 9-11 when you had sufficient evidence. You had sort of a poster child for a no-fly list get on an airplane in Amsterdam uh, on his way to uh, Detroit. Uh, A young man whose father, who was a prominent uh, banker and former senior government official in Nigeria, go to the U.S. Embassy go to the U.S. Uh, CIA station in Nigeria, go to the own, his own Nigerian intelligence and political authorities, and no one paying any attention to this man. No one looking even to see a, a cursory check to see if this young man had a U.S. visa. turns out he had a multiple entry visa. Uh, no one taking the time to go back to Yemen to find out how long had he been in Yemen, what was he doing in Yemen, what was his mission uh, in Yemen. It was a pretty lazy uh, and thoughtless and reckless exercise uh, all around. And I'm sure the mistakes were made at a rather low level, so I don't expect heads to really roll. But Obama has talked about accountability, and we're going to find out what accountability means to the Obama administration.
3: Now, we'll come back to uh, Yemen and uh, the attempted uh, uh, underpants bomber in Detroit. But, Ray, uh, again, focusing on Afghanistan, the death of these seven CIA officers, their role in controlling these predator drones and uh, the so-called secret war that we have, uh, it it strikes me as a fundamental that we cannot win in an asymmetrical situation like this, where people are driven by uh, a deep faith fanaticism, uh, it is how some people would term it, and that we are simply getting ourselves deeper uh, into the quicksand by committing more troops uh, into Afghanistan, when, as you alluded earlier, we really are the provocation that causes people to put their lives on the line to try to uh, combat a massive military occupying force.
2: Well, that's right. Uh, you know, when you talk about the uh, point-counterpoint the uh oppression or aggression then counter reaction reaction Um, you know that's a vicious cycle and it keeps going Um, what I think uh, we need to do as Mel sort of suggested is to look back into history at similar uh, similar passes that our country has been in and of course Vietnam is is very reminiscent uh, of what we have now Mel's uh, and my hero in those days, so uh, Mel can speak to himself, for himself, but George Kennan uh, happened to know a lot about the world as well as the Soviet Union. And I was uh, surprised when he was asked to testify before Congress in early 1966 when we had only lost, I say only, about 20,000 of U.S. troops in Vietnam. Right. And he said, that, look, um, you know, if the only legitimate reason for staying in Vietnam Was the fear uh, that we would look, uh, you know, uh, look cowardly Uh, if that's the only reason? uh, If the fear that an abrupt departure might uh, look look bad for us, then let's not do an abrupt departure, but let's get out because there's more respect, as he put it, this is a quote: "There's more respect to be won in the opinion of the world by a resolute and courageous liquidation." of unsound positions than by the most stubborn pursuit of extravagant objectives. Mm. We are stubbornly pursuing extravagant objectives, which most specialists, and anyone who has some gray in their hair and remembers Vietnam, will tell you it's a fool's errand, as Dave Obi said. It's it's a feckless exercise, and uh, the pity, of course, is that not only U.S. service people are being lost, uh, but uh, thousands of Afghans are perishing, and some Pakistanis as well, because of our inability to liquidate uh, this untenable situation. Uh, and I haven't even addressed uh, the fact that uh, these drone attacks, for example, are against all kinds of international law, yeah. including uh, you know the 1998 report from the UN, which said extrajudicial executions can never be justified under any circumstances. In time of war. So,
3: Well, when, when Secretary of State Clinton uh, visited uh, uh, Pakistan in November, the question was put to her point blank by a female student at a university who just said, uh, How can you justify sentencing people to death when you can't even, you know, particularly identify who you're going to hit with one of these drones? You're going to hit a house where you think a suspect is. But is this not terrorism? Is it not summary execution? And, Mel Goodman, are we not inviting just further rounds of uh, guerrilla activity, terrorist activity, however you want to uh, uh, characterize it, uh, by uh, presumably uh, operating some sort of reaction to what occurred uh, at the forward operating base Chapman?
0: Well, of course we are. And what I would do is go back 150 years to the sparring that took place between the Russians and the British in this part of the world. This was in the 19th century. And the phrase that was coined for this was the great game. Well, this is not a game, but it's interesting that if you talk to the tribal members uh, in Waziristan, the Wazirs or the Masood, they still refer to it uh, as a great game. Uh, They still feel that they are uh, fighting a righteous battle. Uh, They're trying to protect what they consider their homeland in an area that uh, Pakistan has never really controlled. Afghanistan is never really controlled. There's no recognized border between Pakistan and Afghanistan uh, in this particular uh, area. And they're not going to give up the battle. They're going to continue this great game. And while we participate in this great game, uh, Americans are going to be uh, killed. Uh, Families are going to be affected uh, by all this. And there's going to be a a great social and psychological and cultural price that's going to be uh, paid for all of this. Uh, And that's why I regretted Obama's decision just to go along with the military. I taught at the National War College for 18 years, and every time I I had an argument with a high-ranking officer, a colonel, or a general, it always came down to the military that it was just a matter of will, that if we stuck in this battle, if we showed will, and we showed uh, no attempt to compromise will, uh, that we would prevail. Uh, They had no knowledge of the history, no knowledge of the tribes, no knowledge of the culture. Uh, They just reduced it to this one term uh, in in terms of American will. We will protect these areas if we have the will uh, to do so. It's so far more complicated uh, than that. In regions, uh, whether it's Yemen, Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Yemen, now Somalia, we don't understand these uh, regions. And Now you have a Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, who's talking about nation building and has submitted proposals to allow the Pentagon to take the lead in nation building, well, what role could the military possibly have in nation building? What role could they have in dealing with these uh, tribal communities that have been there for hundreds of years, that have taken on all sorts of outsiders from Alexander the Great to Queen Victoria to Leonid Brezhnev, uh, and now George Bush and Barack Obama? It is a fool's errand, and I think it's just madness uh, what we're doing.
3: Now let me get you each to comment on the reasons that you think that President Obama... Uh, made the decision, announced December 1st, to put more troops into Afghanistan. And let me just amend that with a report that I think got lost in the holiday shuffle and the uh, Detroit uproar, which is that uh, Richard Engel, the NBC uh, foreign uh, uh, diplomatic correspondent, I don't know his exact title, but he was on Rachel Maddow's show uh, a couple of nights before Christmas and said that there's an internal Pentagon report that uh, he got a copy of that basically says that uh, it's, it's virtually impossible to train up the Afghan military and police. E- even uh, putting aside the phony 18-month timeline that Obama articulated, that it is impossible because of the various warlords and the infiltration of the military by Taliban and other insurgent elements, and the, the game that Mel referred to, the long-term ebb and flow of uh, military and political control of Afghanistan. And so it it just strikes me that a very rational president made a, a visibly irrational decision and that many Americans are sitting still for it. Ray, you go first
2: well uh peter B., I, I did watch a uh, Rachel motto that night, and richard engel was uh, was giving a a major contribution to the discussion it wasn 't quite yet a government report; it was described as being a contractor report, but mm-hmm. it was very very telling in its brutal frankness uh, what it said was that uh, you there was virtually no Afghan army worth the uh, worth the uh, word that uh no one above company level uh, takes any war seriously, and that it's a it's a feckless exercise to try to train them up, uh, that and the uh, Afghan security services. Now, that's key, because as Engel pointed out, that is the main objective. The, the high brass says what we're going to do is train them up real well, and then we can leave. Well, you know... <laughs> You don't have to go back to Vietnam, but I'd like to just for a second and uh, talk about an intercepted telephone, not a, uh, oh, a uh, recorded telephone conversation between President Johnson and, uh, and McNamara. OK, McNamara, the secretary of defense. This is early March, so about three, four months after JFK was killed. And McNamara's done this little defense posture statement, and uh, he sent it to the president. He said, you know, I'm going to give this. It's a major statement. You may have some ideas. Then we get the telephone call. Hello, Mac? Uh, Yes, Mr. President. Mac, uh, I got your statement here. I think you need to say something about Vietnam. Uh, Well, uh, Mr. President, I thought of that, of course, but I uh, I, I don't, don't know what to say. Mac! We're defending their freedom, aren't we? And we're training up their folks. We're training up their folks, and the training is going good. That's what you say, Mac? Yes, Mr. President. Well, the training was not going good. Mm-hmm. You can't train an indigenous population to go out and kill their cousins and their brothers. What happens is the people you're trying to train are thoroughly infiltrated. Witness the recent uh, the recent events out there in eastern Afghanistan. So, it you know... It's unbelievable for people like Mel and me to be watching this whole thing happen again. And one reason it can happen again is because very few people consulted by Obama know the story of Vietnam. And, uh, you know, there never was a truth commission. There was never – there's still a lot of propaganda about, you know, pulling the rug out from under the the military. Well, you know, we had 536,000 troops in Vietnam, and we couldn't prevail now. You know, did we really pull the bug out? No. It was just an unwinnable situation.
3: Mm -hmm. So why did Obama make that decision? Is it related to the article that you published at Consortium News on December 29th? Are presidents afraid of the CIA?
2: I think he's afraid of the uh, top military and the CIA. Now, when you're a politician, uh, being afraid, I think, has a different connotation. Um, I was, as Mel has been, just in awe at uh, this crazy decision on the part of Obama. It seemed to me that he had had delayed long enough that he was really going to listen to reason and piece this thing together. In the end, he caved. He caved into uh, what McChrystal and uh, Petraeus has set for him, a very, very transparent trap. And then he caved into the the CIA, who is well well engaged there, And, you know, with an operation going, you don't want to stop an operation and look like you're soft on. It used to be soft on communism, right? Now it's soft on terrorism. Right. Yeah.
3: Mel, your turn on these issues, the Engel report and why Obama decided to commit more troops.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I don't think he fears the military, the CIA, but I think he's not very knowledgeable about the military CIA. And I go back to uh, President Eisenhower. Everyone's familiar with his farewell address and the warning about the military-industrial, and I would add, congressional complex, uh, which is now worse than it's ever been. But when Eisenhower left uh, the White House, he had a long chat with his granddaughter, Susan Eisenhower, and he made a very telling point when he said, I hope that my successors uh, have enough knowledge and enough sophistication to be able to deal with the military and to know what the military is asking for is going to have to be stopped from time to time. And if you looked at the presidents that we've elected in the wake of Eisenhower, uh, probably ironically with the exception of Richard Nixon, uh, these presidents have been very naive about the military and about the intelligence community. And I would include Democrats and Republicans in that list. I would include Reagan and Carter and Clinton and both Bushes, uh, for that matter, and now Obama. And I think the real reason why Obama took the decision that he did, because like Ray, I also felt that with the visits to Fort Hood and the trip up uh, to Dover and the walkthrough at the Arling Cemetery, uh, Obama was getting uh, a very direct and vivid lesson of the consequences of war, which I don't think he ever had to think about uh, before. But I think what overwhelmed him was not what the military was asking for or what the CIA was asking for. I think it's worse than that. I think it's domestic politics. I think the only thing Obama is thinking about now is how in the world is he going to get reelected uh, in 2012. So if you look at the Afghan decision, the two most prominent players in that decision were his domestic advisors. It was Rahm Emanuel and David Axelrod. And if you look at the role played by the national security advisors, it was an extremely uh, modest uh, role. Uh, Bob Gates, Secretary of Defense, is a classic windsock, and he waited for Obama to tilt toward 30,000 before Gates and self-declared for 30000 Hillary Clinton was appointed for domestic political reasons. Bob Gates was appointed for domestic political reasons. His national security advisor uh, is a retired Marine general. Marine generals are, are known for uh, saluting and following orders. They're not known for critical thinking on strategic foreign policy matters. I heard Jones lecture at the War College uh, about 10 or 15 times. is a very decent and good man, a good team player, but he should not be the national security advisor. Then you throw in Leon uh, Panetta, who's being run by the National Clandestine Service at the CIA, and then the retired Admiral Dennis Blair, the Director of National uh, in, Intelligence, uh, which is an organization that shouldn't exist and he shouldn't be running it if it does exist. Mm-hmm. So I think everything Obama is doing now is calculated for protecting his equities uh, for 2012. So I think a lot more mistakes are going to be made. This is just uh, the beginning, I think. And remember that we elected a man a very bright man, and a very capable man, and I think a very decent man, who I uh, supported in, in many, many uh, ways, both mm-hmm. as a surrogate speaker and as a contributor to the campaign. But he had no serious background in international affairs whatsoever. He doesn't know the international community. He's never had to think about the international community. He didn't know the players in this country on national and international uh The people who should have been in this cabinet, people like uh, former Senator Chuck Hagel or former Senator Sam Nunn or Bill Bradley or John Kerry or Jack uh, Reed or Larry Korb or Richard Danzig, uh, were not given any uh, visibility, I think, in terms of a selection uh, process. It was all domestic politics, and I can't think of a worse way to run the foreign and national security policies of this country. Uh, I think this is a horror
3: Now, one other question that is uh, begged by the incident near Coast and the loss of the seven CIA officers is what the hell is the CIA doing in a military role? That's what they're conducting, the so-called secret war uh, that, uh, you know, we know about but we're not allowed to really talk about or confirm. And the expanded use of predator drones over Pakistan, beyond the, the tribal areas... Uh, I think is is a serious misstep and to have the CIA managing that with perhaps some help from Blackwater. We're not sure about uh, the role of outside contractors in the uh, use of these drones. Uh, The only benefit is that it protects American lives but the net impact is so negative and the use of the CIA to manage that aspect of our our operations in the theater I also consider it a big blunder. Ray, your comment?
2: Well, Peter b when you say it protects uh, American lives, you probably have in mind the fact that uh, nobody's in the drone to get shot down. Is that what you mean? Yes, that yeah. that's
3: the only benefit that All I right.
2: see. Well, far more important, I, I'm sure you would agree, uh, is the use of the drones as a recruiting tool for al-Qaeda, Taliban, every, every other Islamic uh, person who doesn't like, uh, other Muslims uh, killed in this, what they consider to be, very cowardly way. Mm-hmm. Um, well, as far as the CIA is concerned, you know, President Truman, who set up the CIA, watched it for 16 years, and after John Kennedy was assassinated, actually just nine days after he was assassinated, he took pen to paper, and we have his notes, and he published a op-ed in the Washington Post. Just the first edition, mind you. It was pulled from all subsequent editions. And what he said was, "Wow, the CIA. This is not what I intended." Uh, bear in mind that uh, the CIA had overthrown governments in Iran and Guatemala, and and maybe in Iraq, and was uh, gunning for Cuba. And Truman was, and and also the nine days previous, there was this killing that was unexplained. So Truman explained, "This is not what I had in mind at all. What we ought to do is take the operational part of the CIA and either kill it or give it to some other agency where it belongs better." And let me let me just tell you from a substantive point of view why that's really really important, why that substance that why that structural fault having analysis and operations that is covert action operations in the same building in the same under the same director is a fool's uh, fool's paradise for, for the operators it's because of this think of it here's uh... panetta he's getting millions of dollars to run the uh, predator drones okay why well because we're not supposed to be attacking other countries unless we're at war with them with our regular forces so we attack pakistan with the drones now uh, the drones. I think most people who know about these things know uh, that just like the B-52s over Vietnam, you know, they're going to harden the resistance and cause more terrorism than, than the, the opposite. And so, when the president goes uh, to the substantive people at CIA and says, "Now, uh, I'd like to know, you know, the midterm outlook for Pakistan and Afghanistan, and, uh, and specifically, you know, uh, what effect the, the attacks by the drones are having." Well, he goes back to the substantive analysts, and they say, well, you know, they are incredibly effective in recruiting more uh, jihadists, more extremists. Uh, they're really effective. For us, they're counterproductive. Now, that's the substantive judgment. Now, is the president's daily Brief uh, briefer uh, going to go down to the president the next day and say, Mr. President... Uh, the predator drones are causing more trouble than they're worth. They're recruit, they're enhancing the uh, recruiting lines before Al Qaeda and Taliban. So, you know, in answer to questions, that's the midterm outlook for the effects of the drones. Well, how is he going to do that if, uh, if the director is uh, running this operation? Well, Mel and I would do that. That's why. That's That's why we are here. That's, that's why our, our career when we are today. Yeah. But nobody else is going to do that. Certainly not the people who have moved up since Bobby Gates. Full disclosure here: mm-hmm. uh, Mel Goodman and I both uh, observed Bobby Gates uh, in the gosh, in the in the seven in the sixties and seventies, and uh, and you know, speak from some experience about the man. Uh, but you know, the people that Bobby Gates put in managerial positions—they are not the kinds of people that are going to quibble about anything like telling the truth. Mm-hmm.
3: Mel Goodman, I want to turn to an issue well, that Let
2: me let me answer the question go, about the paramilitary yeah, organization.
3: Yeah, go, go right ahead. I'm this sorry. This
0: is important. You ask, why is the CIA behaving uh, as a paramilitary organization? Well, there's a very simple answer to that. The CIA is a paramilitary organization now, and that's what it's become under the so-called war against terror. Uh, the military role is huge. You had a four-star general running uh, the CIA uh, for several years who was active in politicizing the work uh, of the CIA. You've had a real decline in any uh, production of strategic intelligence. You've had a real decline in the production of national intelligence estimates. The CIA no longer does, and the intelligence community no longer does, special national intelligence estimates. As I said earlier, you had no national intelligence estimates produced in the 90-day period when Obama was considering a new policy direction for Afghanistan, which is really unheard of. Think of all the estimates that were done during the Vietnam War. A lot of them with very good information. Uh, that carried the argument why we were not going to succeed uh, in Vietnam. And then you add the role of the outside contractors. Of course, they're outside contractors at probably every CIA uh, facility throughout uh, this region. They were involved in the secret prisons. They were involved in renditions. They were involved in torture uh, and abuse. Uh, The training of interrogators was done by outside uh, contractors who trained Uh, CIA and military people and other contractors and techniques of torture uh, and abuse. And I think until you reverse the militarization of national security, uh, which Clinton started and Bush uh, really put into place and Obama has not addressed, and the militarization of the intelligence community, where you have a retired admiral running uh, as the intelligence uh, czar, you have a retired general, the national security advisor, you have retired generals as ambassadors. Uh, to Afghanistan and to Saudi Arabia. This yeah. is a very serious problem that you can't get the Senate Intelligence Committee. And I've, I've talked to members, uh, staff members of the intelligence community, and Senator Dianne Feinstein is just not interested in any of this. So the CIA basically is operating uh, just as Eisenhower warned against, and Truman warned uh, against, and picking up a life of its own uh, in the so-called war on, on terror.
3: And uh, I want to point out that Ray McGovern has written a very interesting and powerful piece called Break the CIA in Two, and you can read it at consortiumnews.com. Mel Goodman has some time constraints. So, Mel, let me ask you a final question, and then we will uh, let you go on to your next appointment. Uh, Your favorite newspaper, The Washington Post, reports today (laughs) on uh, January 4th that we know the identity of the eighth individual killed uh, in the suicide bomber attack on our base in Afghanistan near coast. And he is a Jordanian uh, intelligence officer, yeah, Jordanian, Sharif Ali bin Zayed, And he was uh, treated to a funeral with military honors and described as a humanitarian. But the Post goes on to report that uh, Jordan is a key uh, ally with us uh, in Afghanistan, and I think most Americans aren't aware of this. What do you know about the role of Jordan, and how far back does this go?
0: Well, it goes back to uh, King Hussein, who was on the CIA payroll for about 10 or 12 uh, years. Jordan and the United States have worked very closely, particularly since uh, 9-11, and you have to recognize that the CIA has uh, few real sources of its own in this part of the world. They basically rely on liaison services. And, of course, the 9-11 Commission, which I think was mostly uh, a cover-up and very uh, uh, ill-informed and responsible for this crazy-quilt intelligence system we have now, uh, sort of uh, criticized the intelligence community and particularly the CIA for depending too much on foreign liaison. Well, without foreign liaison, we wouldn't have captured and killed the al-Qaeda suspects and terrorists that we have captured uh, and killed because it was foreign liaison with regard to Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Syria, uh, uh, Egypt, uh, and Jordan that provided the necessary information. So we're extremely uh, dependent on these people, and we will uh, continue to be. This is a very important uh, relationship, but you you have risk uh, with this. Uh, I mean, it, this is a perilous activity for Jordan. Jordan has taken great risk, risk because uh... they're now going to be targeted by uh, al-qaeda remember it was uh, a terrorist attack on a wedding ceremony in amman jordan uh... several years ago that really enhanced jordan's willingness to cooperate uh, with the united states and with the cia but this is well known to uh... the region it's only a secret in terms of what americans know
3: about it mm-hmm. And uh, let's wrap up for you right now, Mel. I really appreciate your time today. It's great to have you and Ray on together and uh, share your uh, collective intelligence with us.
0: Well, let me call attention also to uh, a piece I had in uh, Truthout.org today that talks about 9-11 and the Christmas uh, Day attack on 2009 as two examples of more failures of intelligence. The comparison of these two events, because they're... So many incredible similarities, and maybe we can come back to this in
3: another show. Very good. I'll take a look at that, and I appreciate you pointing it out. Thank you, Peter B. Melvin A. Goodman, the author of Failure of Intelligence, uh, subtitled The Decline and Fall of the CIA. And we continue with Ray McGovern on the program. Ray, I wanted to get your comments on the Jordanian connection there with U.S. intelligence operations in Afghanistan.
2: Well, Mel is correct. Uh, (coughs) King Hussein was very close to our uh, colleagues on the operational side. Um, one thing that uh, might have played into this is the fact that the uh, Jordanians uh, probably speak not only Arabic but uh, some of the languages that uh, that are spoken out that way in eastern Afghanistan. At least they would be closer to it, and uh, they probably have their own sources better than ours, as, as Mel suggested. So it's no surprise to me that uh, uh, that there was Jordanian, Jordanian there. And also, of course, there were black border people there as well, uh, according to the latest report. So uh, it'll be interesting to see who the six uh, CIA folks that were wounded are. Um,
3: And and, and tell uh, us a little bit about the protocols, because we're not likely to learn the identity of the seven CIA individuals who were killed. Is that right?
2: Well, I I don't know. Uh, It it would really be up to the families. Um, Some of the families really like to brag about About their uh, sons and and at least one daughter fallen and in the quote defense of our country and its freedom end quote Uh, but some would would probably not want to do that you know I'm reminded and this is uh, probably very relevant I'm reminded of the uh, of the first CIA operative killed in Afghanistan and this was in uh, late November uh, after uh, They had been, uh, CIA and special forces had been combing through the country, and they came across this little encampment of a ragtag bunch of uh, dissidents. And there was a fellow there named John Walker Lind, who had Mm -hmm. just arrived the the week before and was exactly in the wrong place at the wrong time. In any case, uh, Johnny Spahn was the name of the CIA operative, and two others and a bunch of uh, Afghans rounded up prisoners, numbering about 100, but unfortunately, forgot to uh, disarm them, like to pat them down or search them, and so one of them carried his AK-47 into this little prison area and uh, and unloaded it on lots of folks, including Johnny Spahn, and killed them. Mm-hmm. Now, professionals would would question what kind of tradecraft would be being applied when someone's allowed to keep his AK-47. But that that is beside the point. What happened was that. Uh, This was the first one of our men killed, right? And here was an American who happened to be there, and so he became the, quote, American Taliban. And John Walker Lind, at the end of November, was the first American, actually the first captive, who was denied habeas corpus, Mm -hmm. who was denied a lawyer, and who was tortured. For three days. There's no other word for his treatment. He was tortured for three days. Yeah. Now, that, set, you know, that, that kind of uh, treatment is vengeance, and uh, you know, there's all kinds of different... Uh, let, let me go to one other episode that people don't probably know the full story on. And
3: let, let me just interject that sure. uh, Frank Lind, uh, John's father lives about 3 blocks from where I'm sitting right now. Is that right? And he's still not uh, willing to go public. Uh, I've I've offered him many opportunities to speak and uh, they're trying to use back channels to get President Obama to commute his sentence or pardon him. And uh, so they're they're playing a very delicate uh, process there. Yeah. But I I have very strong feelings about uh, John Lind and it's uh, it's tragic that Uh, that case is now just, you know, receded into the the backwash, and nobody wants to examine what really happened there and what his level of culpability might have actually been.
2: Yeah. Well, he was seized on by Ashcroft and all the others that needed some kind of trophy to bring home. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if you know this part of the story, but your listeners probably would want to know this. That when he got back uh, and he was going to trial, all of a sudden it occurred to a uh, deputy or assistant secretary of Just- Justice Department, uh, Michael Chertoff, yeah. that this could be a real, real uh, debacle, because uh, chances are that uh, John Walker Lind would uh, tell about this torture and mm-hmm. how he was treated and so forth. And so he convened a weekend meeting with John Walker Lind's uh, uh, attorney and can't believe the bargain that was struck, but the bargain was, we'll give you, quote, only, end quote, 20 years, John Walker Lind, if you sign this paper saying you will never say that you were tortured. And that was the deal. And that, you know, it's just so unconscionable that they would do that. Mm -hmm. But there he sits in jail ever since. And I hope his father has the right back channels because it's just a despicable, a travesty of justice.
3: And last year I uh, heard from an anonymous caller who claimed that he was uh, a fellow inmate with John Lind at a federal prison in Southern California, and he does report that he's doing okay, so uh, oh, that's, good. that's what I know. I interrupted you. You had another thought, if you can recall it.
2: Yeah, I can recall it, but before I do, uh, if you have interest in the, the play-by-play on this, uh, a woman, a very gutsy, young Department of Justice lawyer uh, working in the ethics section. Her name is Jesselyn Radick, and she's written a book on uh, this, this escapade. Mm-hmm. She was fired because she insisted that the Justice Department and the Special Forces and the Army uh, read him his rights, uh, not deny him habeas corpus, and, of course, not torture him. And she was just brushed aside and uh, demoted and, and released
3: A note of that thank you
2: the only the other thing I was going to adduce Peter B this has to do with uh, remember those blackwater types that were uh, mercilessly uh, treated there in Fallujah and then sort of ended up being hung up by
1: sure do yeah he was
2: there in fallujah when this happened and he saw pictures in all the storefronts and most of the houses and there were pictures of this assassinated cleric Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it's uh, I, I, I fear for what uh, will happen now uh, when uh, the president feels under pressure from the same kinds of folks to show um, that he has uh, he has large willhood, that he has a lot, lot of courage
3: now. Ray, one of the other things that occurred over the holidays was uh, Judge Ricardo Urbina in Washington, who I have a high regard for for his handling of the case of the Uyghurs detained Mm -hmm. at uh, Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. He dismissed all the charges against the Blackwater mercenaries who were responsible for the shoot-up at Nisour Square near Baghdad. And uh, I believe that that was a setup from the beginning, that the manner in which they handled the investigation was modeled on the, uh, what, what the, oh. the, the deadlock that Oliver North created oh, yeah, for himself. You got it. Yeah. And this goes back to when he uh, coughed up a lot of information uh, before Congress that then could not be used against him in a criminal case. Yeah. And likewise, the investigators uh, got the Blackwater employees to file reports that violated their Fifth Amendment rights. Yeah. And uh, now the judge reached, I think, the inevitable decision that that trial couldn't go forward. But I think the fix was in from the very start. Would you agree? I
2: would agree. And uh, what McGovern thinks is not very important, but what Scott Horton, uh, the very prominent civil rights lawyer uh, up in New York, mm-hmm. what he told Amy Goodman this morning uh, is, much fo- is far more important. And what he said when Amy asked him, do you think this was a setup from the beginning? He said, could be. And when Scott Horton says could be, uh, the probability that it is uh, is, is uh, very high. Yeah, Orbina, I like him, too, because he had the guts to order the Uyghurs here yeah. and was overruled. So I think he had no choice. Uh, but the good news, Peter B., is that uh, Scott Horton made very clear this is not the end of that story, that there are all kinds of ju- judicial avenues that the uh Uh, The people who were killed uh, in Montsouk Square uh, Mm -hmm. can can follow, and there are a lot of civil suits as well. So hopefully um, hopefully they'll be able to do away with the tainted evidence or the evidence they can't use. But, you know, the Justice Department is, uh, you know, I remember George Ball, Deputy Secretary of State, describing the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the early 60s as a cesspool. Well, you know, look at the Department of Justice. I don't think Eric Holder had any idea of how that had been not only politicized, mm-hmm. but corrupted to the point of justifying torture, going after people, making up uh, making up charges against them, and now uh, fixing it so uh, these blackwater types can't be convicted. Or so they thought. Well, they lost; they won the first round. But as Scott Horton pointed out this morning. Uh, there are more rounds to
3: come, and that's a good thing. Ray, I want to finally talk with you about something that uh, uh, Mel Goodman uh, interjected earlier, and that is the Christmas Day events in Detroit, where a young man from Nigeria uh, uh, was uh, found uh, trying to ignite uh, his underpants, which contained uh, plastic explosives. And uh, after a couple of uh, uh, firecracker-type noises, Uh, He was subdued by fellow passengers and a a flight attendant or two. And in the aftermath, we're learning that uh, he uh, reportedly was uh, trained and equipped in Yemen. And now it appears that we are going to go for a round of vengeance against uh, certain operatives in Yemen. Well, we've known for a long time, since the attack on the coal... Uh, since the intercept of communications between Osama bin Laden and a safe house in Sanaa in Yemen that uh, has been well-documented by James Bamford in his book Shadow Factory and the uh, Nova documentary that he produced for PBS. Uh, So it's not at all a surprise that Yemen is a point of networking uh, for those who uh, are arrayed against us, and al-Qaeda in particular, And so the points that uh, Mel made a few minutes ago uh, about our failures to uh, put this kid on a watch list after his father essentially turned him in to our authorities in Nigeria is one set of issues. But for us to uh, uh, be, uh, I don't know, the the way we're demonizing Yemen as if uh, this just cropped up recently, and we're overlooking the fact that just a week before, this young man uh, left Yemen and uh, then got on the plane that ultimately uh, came to Detroit, that we launched a predator drone attack on a house where we thought Anwar al-Awlaki was present. And this is the former uh, imam from a Washington-area mosque uh, near you in Virginia, Mm -hmm. uh, who uh, emailed back and forth with with, uh, Nidal Hassan, uh, the psychiatrist, military psychiatrist, who did the shooting at Fort Hood. Right. And so uh, these are connections that are being played down, but do you believe that it's a plausible scenario that this attack was direct retaliation for our attempt to snuff out al-Awlaki?
2: Uh, no, Peter B., but only for this reason, uh, the timing doesn't work. Um, the... Uh the travel and the planning that we know uh, that this fellow Abdul uh, had and did mm-hmm. uh, was to
1: preceded was,
2: it. You know, preceded this latest. But you know, mm-hmm. if you go back to six years, Peter B. to '03, uh, that was one of the the most uh, flagrant targeted assassinations where um, where drones uh, took out a car that was traveling through the the desert, which included a U.S. citizen. Four or five people were killed because mm-hmm. they were judged to be terrorists, and you know, so that that was in Yemen, and uh, so this has been going on for a while. Now the embarrassment there was that uh, uh, the uh, Yemen government disclaimed any responsibility or any knowledge for it, uh, but we wanted to brag and say, "Oh yeah, the Yemenis did know about that; they're our friends," and so forth. So. You know, it all comes uh, home to roost here. And what I would simply say about uh, the intelligence debacle, and that's what it is. I mean, Mel is exactly right. Uh, this is nine eleven all over again. And how can it happen? How can it happen that all these so-called dots are lying around and no one puts them together? Well, you know how it can happen, Peter B. It can be happened because nobody is held accountable. Mm-hmm. I remember being invited by the BBC to comment on the 9-11 Commission Report, which I have in my hand here, and the thing that struck me with a quick read was simply, no one is going to be held accountable. Now, if no one is held accountable, then uh, nobody's gonna suffer any consequences for doing a lousy job or missing a major thing like this. Now, after I got out of the BBC that day in July 2004, uh who was coming in but uh uh but the previous senator from Washington, uh Horton is his uh, last name. Uh
3: oh Slade Gordon. Slade
2: Gordon. Yeah, yeah okay. So yeah. he comes in and uh he had a little time there, so I said uh 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 Senator Gordon, um I don't understand all this business about who's, you know, there's nobody in charge and nobody's responsible. And, you know, everyone keeps saying nobody's in charge in the intelligence community. Uh, the law says that the director of central intelligence, in this case, George Tenet, that he's in charge. Oh, what's all this stuff about, being, about being, creating a new superstructure? You got, you got the wherewithal there. And you know what he does? He puts his arm around me, Peter B. And he says, I know, Ray, but... He wouldn't take charge, he wouldn't coordinate, uh, he wouldn't hold anybody's feet to the fire. And so I'm just about to say to him, well, <laughs> so you have to create a whole new bureaucracy of 2,000 people? But he got called into the BBC, but isn't mm-hmm. that indicative of the of the uh, the morass that we were in there? Uh, Tenet had the responsibility. He was the one that was accountable. Under the law, because he is the principal intelligence advisor to the president, and he was responsible for coordinating all the work of the 16 intelligence uh, agencies in our community. And he didn't do the right job, and yet uh, he was elected to stay in his place, and everybody else stayed in their place. And who's in charge now? Well, give me a break. Now we have another bureaucracy, mm-hmm. uh, 180,000 strong, and that's this Department of Homeland Security. Department of Homeland Security and the director of national intelligence bureaucracies were both set up simply as an attempt to show that Congress was doing something about terrorism yeah. and they're counterproductive as they usually are when Congress gets involved in this kind of thing out of partisan political reasons.
3: Well, now we have the hysteria that follows this uh, attempted knicker bombing. And uh, the new security rules are like a Maginot line that uh, will inconvenience and infuriate uh, the you know nearly 100% of travelers who have no uh, bad intentions and uh, probably fail to capture anyone because tactics will be changed to adjust to the very obvious shift that we've undertaken. But the other piece of this, Ray, is that uh, there are 98 or so Yemenis who are still at Guantanamo, and I do support the president's effort to close it, uh, and the departure of Greg Craig as White House counsel is just one of the factors that has slowed the process. But the media is enabling people like Liz Cheney to say without any proof whatsoever that because they're at Guantanamo, they are the worst of the worst, and that we therefore cannot repatriate them to Yemen or even find anywhere else on the planet for them to live outside of Guantanamo or perhaps a supermax prison that's being prepared in Illinois. And this has been echoed now by Jane Harmon, uh, the hawkish so-called Democrat from Southern California who was captured on an FBI intercept, making deals with the uh, uh, APAC <laughs> uh, trying to get herself promoted to intelligence committee chair. And then Diane Feinstein uh, who is, uh, uh, you know, responding to this by saying that this isn't a good time to release these people from Yemen. Well, the reason that they're there is because they're innocent. Uh, There has been no connection made between them and terrorism. And we're now also seeing reports that uh, tend to uh, support the contention that people have been released from Guantanamo and returned to the quote-unquote battlefield. And while there may be one or two instances of that, uh, primarily I believe that we've radicalized people by detaining them indefinitely without charge uh, and outside of the Geneva Conventions and torturing them, and that uh, that would probably explain any alliances a released detainee has with terrorists as opposed to the fact that we have released them back to the battlefield.
2: Well, that's right. Uh, You know, it's it's just such a travesty on justice, Guantanamo and uh, Bagram and Abu Ghraib and so forth. Uh, The thing that's most salient here, Peter B., is that uh, when uh, army interrogators asked the jihadists who came into Iraq from outside the country what brought them there, They all said, about 90% of them said Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo. So what we're doing now, of course, is what we have done, is uh, lengthen the lines of the recruiting stations. But, you know, we deny these people habeas corpus. Now that goes back to 1215, if my memory serves. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's not not America. That's not what we stand for. What we need to do is give them... uh, the kind of the judicial procedures that they're entitled to, any human being is entitled to. And the problem, of course, is the demagogues like uh, Jane Harman and, and Feinstein and, and the rest of them who see uh, who, who are afraid of Fox News, frankly. And I've had congressmen tell me that. Uh, John Conyers told me that he couldn't move to impeach the president because Fox News, quote, would have a heyday, end mm. quote. Mm. So that's the kind of cowards we're we're actually living with, and uh, that's why there's such a big premium on uh, on shows like yourself, uh, you know, iPods and all of the rest of it, so that uh, some people who are interested and in take the trouble can hear hear the real story. You know, what never what never gets mentioned in play-by-play sessions like this, Peter B. is is the broad objectives here and and why we're in Iraq and Afghanistan. I just have to say the word oil. I just have to say the two words natural gas. Uh, those are the preeminent realities there that got us into Iraq uh, to a only slightly lesser extent into Afghanistan. And unless people can understand that uh, that's consonant with U.S. policy since World War I, uh, they really can't have any overarching rationale for why we would find ourselves in these godforsaken places and find it necessary to expend such treasure and such loss of life uh, in now in Afghanistan. Most people don't even know that there was a, or there is uh, engineering studies and all kinds of plans for a pipeline uh, leading from Turkmenistan, which now get this, Turkmenistan has um, It has natural gas deposits worth more than all the oil under the sands of Iraq. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. That's what the geologists have found. Now, Enron, uh, not not Enron, but a couple of the oil companies, ExxonMobil, they're already there. Okay, Chevron's already there. They're drilling, but they have no way to get the oil and the natural gas out of the country, right? It's landlocked. And so they have this pipeline going through Afghanistan, Pakistan a little slice of India, and out into the Arabian Sea, uh, bypassing, or not it's not necessary for this stuff to go through the Persian Gulf, nor is it necessary for it to go through the Soviet Union. Right. A godsend, and that was the original plan, and that's what was discussed with the oil companies by Taliban representatives in Houston, Texas, okay, right. in the late 90s. Yeah. Now, when I asked uh, one of the authors of this plan, uh, Zalmay uh, Khalid Azad, who who was our ambassador in Afghanistan and in in in, in Baghdad,
3: and at the UN,
2: at the UN, yeah. I said, uh, <laughs> you know, tell me. I uh, hate to you know, hate to bring an elephant into the living room here, but nobody has said anything at this Rand meeting all morning on about oil uh, and gas. Uh, where does that pipeline stand? You know, the one that you were involved in that, that pipeline, the Tapi, uh, Turkmenistan. Afghanistan, Pakistan, India.
3: Where's and, his stand? and Hamid Karzai was the the guy negotiating on on the part of <laughs> Afghanistan.
2: That's right. Yeah. So uh, uh, Khalid Zad looks at me. Senator 11 was the other guy, and he was uh, not. He was uncomfortable with the question. And uh, Khalid Zad, you know, what he says to me, he says, "Well, with all the violence there, you know, w- w- it's just not, you know, right now it's it's not feasible." And if I if I were allowed a, a follow up, I would say, well, oh, okay, so we're there to tamp down the violence. Our soldiers are positioned along the projected route of that oil and natural gas pipeline, so that yeah, once the violence is going, then we got it. Is that it? Because you know it's so transparent. You know he didn't. He, Diplomat, though he is, he didn't disguise the fact that it's only the violence that's preventing the building of the pipeline. And therein lies a lot of the reason why we're in that part of the world and why we're unlikely uh, to leave it anytime soon.
3: Ray McGovern, you're a great American, and I really appreciate talking with you and earlier Mel Goodman. And I want to direct people again to ConsortiumNews.com, where you post regularly. Thank you, Peter B. Great to talk with you, Ray. Happy New Year to you. And same to yourself. And happy trails. Thanks. Send me your comments, Peter, at Peterbcollins.com. Thanks for listening. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keeps my